Petersfield's Shine Radio. This is Talking Books, presented by Susie Wilde and Tim O'Kelly. Hello, I'm non-AI Susie Wilde, picking real May blossom out of my hair. And I'm Tim O'Kelly of One Tree Books. And Tim, I had put in the script astride the stone of destiny because it's been the coronation and I wanted to be topical. It has indeed. And uh, it, uh, we had a lovely, gentle few days off because the shop was closed on Saturday. So we so uh, are feeling refreshed now. Did you have a good one? Very good one. Very good break. That's, so. that's good. So our guest this month is Frances Liardet. Tim and I recorded the interview at her book event last month. And it was a great event we had. Lots of people there, and she was wonderful, and, um, and her interview was great as well. It was, and, and it really lo- lots of people. Yeah. It was yeah. lovely. Really, really good. But let's start as usual, Susie, with what you've been reading this month. Well, I've had lots of books that I've been supposed to read to learn how to invigilate and things like that. So I've been, and also review. So I'm not going to count those because they were kind of duty things. But one of the things was um, what is going to be my... Well, it isn't backlisted. I'm going to explain more about that later. But I've decided I'm going to look at children's books and young adult books mostly in that section now. So apart from that, I've been reading Johnson at 10 by Anthony Selden and Raymond Newell, which I think is absolutely brilliant. Have you read it yet? No, I've been I've been I've read some of the serialisation in the in the paper and it does look very good. I think he's a good writer, Anthony Selden. And um he certainly seems to have uh understood Johnson, I think. I think that's what what's really interesting is he's sort of got under the under his skin and actually we think we I've got the we got never quite get the real person, but I think we've got a pretty good picture of the real person. Um, For good or ill. I mean, I really like that that there's a lot of balance. Obviously, there's a lot of opprobrium. And one of the other things I liked about it is it's written in a style as if the the people are in the room. I mean, Anthony and Robert Newell are in the room chatting to you. But they spoke and only used first-hand witnesses if you like even though many of them had to remain anonymous so yes they're anonymous to us but very much verbatim um and or and had witnessed things firsthand as well and i found that absolutely fascinating how good i mean it's interesting i just i read the sebastian payne book on the fall of johnson uh, and I think that's particularly interesting because he's a very well-connected journalist. He, he was on the FT for a long time. He's now working for some think tank. But um, he seems to get to get all the detail of, of the actual fall of Johnson. And I think that... But that's not the whole story, obviously, is no. what, which is what Selden is doing. Um, and I think, uh, yeah, no, it, it is a, quite an eye-opener. Uh, he... he well, I won't have to. I won't say what I what I what I personally think of of the of the gentleman concerned. No, um, I'll keep that, to, keep that. I'll keep that to myself. Yes, I think so. But um, yes, um, but I really heartily recommend it to everybody. It's it's much more balanced than you might suppose, and quite understanding. Anyway, how about you, Tim? Well, I've I've done been reading a couple of thrillers. Um, so there are the Partisan by Patrick Worrell. This is a this is his debut actually. It's set in nineteen sixty one. The, the publishers were very excited about it, so they said, "Please read. You must read this." And and um, uh, and I, and it's good actually. It's a cold. The Cold War is hotting up. Um, uh, it's about chess prodigies and spies, 
and also about the, the legacy of the, the brutal guerrilla war in, in Lithuania in, during the Second World War. And um, it, it's definitely, it's definitely a, a interesting, it's quite an exciting one rather than, a, rather, than the, rather than the cerebral type of spy thriller, it's more of an action, action based. And the other one, which is, I'm reading at the moment actually, is The Spy Across the Water by James Nocty. And that's much more of a cerebral, uh, John le Carre style uh, spy thriller. Um, it's very good, but nothing much happens. I'm about halfway oh. through, and really nothing has happened at all of any, any great moment. Um, but it's subtle, and you know, things, small things have happened, and, and you get the feeling, and it's, it's very, very readable. And Jim um, has so much knowledge. Has he put too much of his well, knowledge in? Yeah, probably. Uh, it's like his reporting; he tends to never tends to un- underdo things. Um, and uh, but it's it's you know, it's, I'm still entertained by, it, I'm still enjoying it, I'm still reading it. So. Uh, so that's good. He's actually coming to Chichester Cathedral in a in a few weeks' time to come and talk about the book um, with Colin Heber Percy, the, the the vicar of Savernac Forest. I don't know if you know you know about his book. He's written a book about um, not being the vicar of Savernac Forest. Right. Uh, and uh, so that should be a very entertaining evening, actually. That should be good as long as they sort of. Well, I have seen him at the Borders Book Festival and it's a bit like Ken Dodd. I mean, it's a packed tent and come midnight, people show no signs of wanting to go home. But of course, everybody who works at the festival is quite keen that he might rack it up sometime right. soon. Right. Well, this is a, it's a very good event because it's in aid of, in aid of children, children's literacy locally. Oh, so all brilliant. the funds go, go to that. So uh, it's definitely, definitely one support. And the third book I, would, I read this month was um, Unsettled Ground by Claire Fuller, uh, which, um, well, it, it's, a really, it's a really interesting book. It's a twin brother and sister um, live in a house in the woods. Uh, they're completely insulated from the modern world. And when their mother, who's been looking after them and, and shielding them from the modern world, really, dies suddenly, uh, these two 50-year-olds don't really know how to cope with, with, with mobile phones and uh, how to sort out... Um, money and all these things it's 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 really interesting actually mm. and at the, at the, there's kind of lots of undercurrents going on like in all her work there's 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 constantly things beneath the surface and we gradually get a picture didn't she them. get shortlisted for the booker for unsettled ground i did not was that one shortlisted? i think she was longlisted bitter orange Longs. i think was was uh, okay was up there as okay. well. I think she's she's there or thereabouts right. with Booker, she's Booker really but she's not absolutely quite, not quite um, yeah, yeah, yeah. made we, it yet. But um, We loved yeah. Unsettled Ground, actually. Yeah. I was, when I say it's a really excellent book club book, that always sounds slightly pejorative, but I think oh, it's no. because there's she sends you up so many alleys and you think, I know where this is going. They say, yeah. oh, no, absolutely yeah. not. I think with the, I mean, the definition of a good book club book really is, is when there's stuff that you, you, you want to unpick yes. with, with, with people and they go... You go, ah, oh, that's what they meant. Uh, what's or what, different, that's what she's perfectly about. valid interpretations. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, but it, 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 yeah, no, definitely I can see why that would be good for book clubs. Fab. So now we've got our interview. Um, and Tim, when I was preparing for this, I saw that oddly, one of your choices, your book choices in May 2022 was Think of Me by Frances Liardet. Yes, I, I think she's a really good writer, actually. Um, so please be managed to get her in. Um, so I've read... Well, both of her modern books, because she heard a book a long time ago, uh, and um, and then she had a family, and then she's got these two two books that have come out. We must be brave, which and there's a link between the two. They've got they've got characters that occur in both, although it's not as definitely not a sequel, but there are characters that appear in both. And I wasn't really even 
that clear because it was a while ago that I read the first one. Uh, when I read it, I wasn't that clear on. Didn't strike me the new the characters or the characters I knew already. It's only when I finished it, I was thinking about it that I kind of put all the put all the bits together. And you totally don't need to know. No. But then listeners will hear all about it. so lucky because we have author Frances Liardet with us. Um, Tim and I went to her book signing last night which had the most wonderful atmosphere with um, a paean of praise from your father to I begin know. it and I was so mm. envious having had a complete awful father who left home. I was jealous just of the fact of hearing his pride. I was, I'm very lucky, honestly, I really, really am. He's a terrific writer too. Is he? Yeah, it's, it definitely runs in the family, as was his mother. As is my mother and her mother too. They've all written. Oh, and my, my you grandmother, had to be an author. Well, she started writing in her 80s, my maternal grandmother, and sold a story to, I think it was Bella or Best, about her dog saving her in the snow. Oh, Absolutely I want to brilliant. read that. We've got it at home. I'll see if I, I can scan it I seriously would like to read yeah, it. No, it was wonderful. <laughs> Okay, well, I was going to introduce Francis because so you grew up with strong links uh, in the Mian Valley. You studied Arabic yes. at Oxford and worked as a translator, including translating for Nobel Prize winner Naguib Mahfouz. Mm-hmm. Uh, your first novel came out in 1994, which won a Betty Trask Award. And then a quarter of a century later, you brought out your next one, We Must Be Brave, and then following on shortly after that, Think of Me, which is your latest book. So I think we should kick off by asking, tell us a little bit about the new book, Think of Me. Well, Think of Me grew out of We Must Be Brave and it contains a lot of the same characters and a lot of the book is in the same setting. What happened when I finished We Must Be Brave was that quite late on I introduced a character called the Reverend James Acton. I mean quite late on in the writing. And I became interested in this person and then when I finished We Must Be Brave I realised that I had not actually finished with James Acton and I wanted to write his story. So I found the the character an interesting one, um, a a wartime uh, fighter pilot, a prisoner of war and a priest. And so I I thought that sort of life had to be told and it would shape him when when he comes to Upton. He would be that man bringing all that experience and also other more personal grief with him. So that was the character. I that think I this is genuinely standalone, though, because I hadn't read your previous mm. novel, and I loved this. Like, there was no oh, yes. sense to me no. if I'm missing backstory. No, no, I took care to make sure that that was the case, um, because it's told from the point of view of an incomer to the village. So no prior knowledge is necessary mm. because he has none. So um, well, it despite the fact that well. I had read the first one, I didn't realise until until <laughs> I didn't realise that how how connected they were actually yeah, until, until yeah. I kind of read a bit more around the around yes. the book. So yeah. just I just when I read the book I had no I had no memory that, that Ellen for example of course <laughs> yes. a central character in the previous yes. book no and that that James obviously appears so yeah. so uh, and she's sort of although she's some peripheral in this book she's key in yeah this book. absolutely um, and it starts in Alexandria and obviously that your your Egyptian connections perhaps are, are a reason for that are they yes very much so I felt that I could. Um, use what I knew because it was really first-hand knowledge um, about Egypt where I went after I did my first degree in Arabic I went to Egypt um, I live mostly in Cairo 
but visited Alexandria often. And I started translating um, modern Egyptian writers at that time. So I was able then to go to Alexandria with one of my books by one of the writers I was translating. And at the time, I could go to a hotel receptionist and say, I want to see this place. It's where they used to sell onions at the port, and it smells of onions, and it's got um, boards which are quite dry in the sun. And the receptionist at that point would say, oh, yes, I know where that place is. Fantastic. Um, I can go and see it. So I was able to kind of really research my translations. So that kind of depth of knowledge really helped for me to sort of reformulate Alexandria when it came on to the scene later in my writing as it did right. here. And right. One of the things um, I was going to say about this book is how I felt that I was there, even though I yeah. haven't actually visited, through the smells, they're so mm. evocative of mm. everything, just even somebody's skin. And yeah. It, yeah. You're really key on, on Well, it's, it was scent. very, it was a formative time for me when I first went. I was in my early 20s. So therefore, my degree and my time in Egypt was my formative years. So therefore, you know, the, the sense of the, all your senses are alive, really, to such a new place, such a different place. So uh, that, I think that helped to imprint things as well. And the other side is my family history. I had two grandfathers in Egypt, one just before the war in the RAF, and the other one during the war. Uh, he was a tank commander um, at Alamein. And I used one of his key experiences in the book um, when he was shot at by an RAF pilot whose plane was loaded with special tank-busting shells. So this RAF pilot had two goes at trying to blow up Grandpa's tank. Poor pilot. I looked in the Air Ministry records and it all happened at dusk, this raid. It was a big tank battle, panzers here, um, allied tanks there, you know, it was a complete mess, there was lots of dust. So this poor pilot mistook Grandpa's tank for an enemy tank, and um, very luckily for us he missed both times. <laughs> but my grandfather wrote a lot about, um, he wrote a long letter to my grandmother about the North African campaign and his part in it. Uh, and sadly part two of the letter never arrived, there was another bit, so possibly it was sunk on some mail boat in the Mediterranean or something, but we never got part two. But very, very detailed, day-by-day -day account um, of the campaign. So I found it quite easy to uh, think about the terrifying chaos of that time, really, and how they all kept going. Mm -hmm. Yes, yeah, they just, funnily enough, we've just done as our, uh, a book club in, in the shop, Moon Tiger, the Penelope Lively. Oh, yes, um, yeah. Uh, but which is obviously fe featured a lot about the mm. the, um, the Western Desert there. Um, but uh, so that that's one thing that really come, becomes clear. You know the 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 visceral sense of of Alexandria, the the the, um, the, the traumatic experience of being a, a pilot um, in in that theatre. Um, but also, of course, then the story moves to Hampshire. Yeah. Um, and that becomes a bit a bit, in some ways, um, to us us. Uh, pedants of, of you know of, of Petersfield it, it's a bit more like home yeah so. that's right yeah and, and a slip of decades as well which I found tremendously helpful so anyone like me is going oh god another war book yeah you both lighten yeah. that because there's the love yeah. interest yeah. but also now we're in mm. the 70s absolutely I love yeah. that mm. so why, why do you pick the 70s is that something that's that's uh Again, I think for me it was formative. I mean, I was young. Mm. I was a young child when we moved here. Um, my father uh, was in the navy, so up to the age of nine, 
eight or eight, I moved several times, I mean eight or nine times because that's what the Navy did to families in those days. So when we came here it was all quite unfamiliar and it was very countrified and I'd only lived in towns before then really that I remembered and so I was a little cautious about the whole thing. Um, but I went to a tiny school, I'd never been to such a small school and nobody called the teacher Miss, you know, and I stuck my hand up and said, please Miss, and they're like, no, 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 you can call her by her name. And it was all, I just kind of slowly kind of ingrained myself into this place really and I got very sensorily adapted to it you know when you see the mm -hmm. downs the the sweep of the chalk hills and the chalky fields and the beech trees and the beech woods uh, I think they kind of imprint themselves on you in a way and that was my kind of uh the source of my feeling every mm -hmm. writer will talk about a special feeling that a place gives them and that makes them want to say something about it and that was it for me Fantastic. I think mm. of Edward Thomas then having yes. the, um, that imprint. Well, gosh, yeah, yeah. But also at the heart of this book, as well as being set in these two different places, it's got a sort of mystery and and yeah. um, and secrets. Yeah, I mean, mm. that that yeah. seems to be key to this book. Mm. Unifies the the two timelines really is um, the presence of Yvette James's beloved wife, um, who he lost. Um, when she was 44 so he comes to Upton a widow and she was a young Alexandrian woman they fell very much in love during the war and they married and he comes to Upton for a fresh start but he's challenged almost immediately by his archdeacon who says is it a fresh start or are you actually going over old ground and he reminds him that, of course, his first parish was very near Upton, which James is sort of not even thinking about. So it's what happened during those days that James is preoccupied with. Mm. And he arrives in Upton and almost immediately he sees on a pew in the village church a beautiful, brightly coloured, Mediterranean colours, silk scarf. And he looks at it and he's absolutely convinced that it once belonged to Yvette, his wife. So this scarf kind of insinuates himself into the story. You know, it's there, this bright image right at the beginning, very mysterious. And, and you kind carefully of... persuade the reader because there's writing on the scarf, yes. which he couldn't have known. He could yeah. have convinced himself with the colour or something, but because right. it's so particular, yes. as a reader, you go, oh my God, he really knew yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or there is something ghostly. Yeah, was a, and anyway, the scarf kind of winds itself through the story and... James feels the presence of Yvette very strongly in this village that neither of them ever went to, and he can't work out why. But, of course, we find out. Dot, dot, dot. And also, there's lots of strands in this book, I think, um, as well as, as, well as this, these two stories going on. There's, an, there's a, a further love story going on at somewhere in there. I won't give it too much, too many details. Mm. But also there's this father-son thing, which I think oh, is really interesting. father-son. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, Tom and, and, and James. And, mm. um, tell us a bit about that. Well, I, I wanted to... Um, I, I really wanted to concentrate on what happens, you know, when a family, a small family with a single child, and then suddenly the mother dies and the child is young. And then what happens to the father? What the father needs to do? Um, at that point and James is completely jolted out of his fatherly role into a, a real emergency rescue situation as he has to be and of course he has to learn the whole thing about parenthood um, 
as so many widowed people do now, and indeed single parents, where there's no division anymore between fathering and mothering. And so James has to be father and mother both to this boy, and he be he becomes more, I think, he becomes more tender and aware emotionally than he otherwise might have been. You know, he might have just got on with his ministry and his world and left all that to Yvette a bit, you know, but he had to plunge in and look after this, um, this boy. And they are completely a team. I mean, they absolutely are so, so close. They seem to know what each other are thinking and they, they share everything until suddenly the son realises there's something that James has not shared with him. And that is a terrible, produces a terrible crisis of trust. And um, Tom is extremely shocked and angry at that point. Um, but they, he sort of, um, he chaffs his dad a lot, you know, and, and keeps him going. And you can see them comforting each other at different stages or challenging each other. Um, often Tom seems the more grown up. Um, he's the, he seems to be more able to create a nice, atmosphere when James is inviting somebody to have a drink and he says well I've got some peanuts and crisps and Tom rolls his eyes and says he's got some peanuts and crisps oh my gosh at least invite her to dinner you know and then he cooks something and he makes it nice and he talks to her and he he sort of helps his dad to to kind of rehabilitate himself into the world after this really long period of what's essentially mourning even though he was he was not an unhappy man he was an entirely um, un emotionally unattached man yeah. with another adult. I mean, it brings so much mm. humour in, doesn't it? I yeah. love it as a as a different love story, but also yeah. so much humour as you do elsewhere. Yeah, yeah, and, and I think that's why it's so devastating when Tom realises there's been this secret that emerges, um, and he can't believe his dad never told him. You know, mm. it was huge. So, so um, you've you've obviously got you've used this some of the characters twice now and you've yeah. got an, in a kind of um, not quite a David Mitchell fashion of bringing characters into different different stories but you've got any plans to do it again are you gonna, <laughs> is, is number three going to in this kind of loose series going to be feature Tom and, and what happens to him at, I had a or, lot of fun um, matching up the timeline um, with We Must Be Brave and Think of Me because certain characters have to meet at certain times and things have to happen so I actually did a whole calendar of the Ooh. days of the week, you know, to work out when and where each character was to make sure that the two stories meshed sufficiently. And then having meshed successfully could then be standalone novels. I know that sounds a bit paradoxical, but they, but they had to work. And I think I would love to do a third. I mean, there's so much that I can say um, without giving too much away. The character of William Kennett, for me, the, the gardener, is an incredibly rich mm -hmm. character. And again, very, very important in the lives of the principal characters, more important than we even know. Um, to but you know already, don't you? I know, I know so yes. Did, when you, so, so when you wrote um, We Must Be Brave, were you thinking that I'm gonna, these characters have got other lives somewhere no, else? No, not at all, no, okay. no. I was just dead glad to get it finished, oh my gosh. I began it when my daughter went to school. Um, I'm a, what they call an elderly mother, so I had my daughter at 45 and uh, she got into she was at school and so I just started writing in my 50s again and all the things I needed to do and everything I wrote round that I wrote a lot of time at five o'clock in the morning it took ages and I finished it uh, at the the first book round about when she left her first school 
And so I, I was just so glad to actually have produced something coherent after all the time that I'd spent. Because 25 years between Yeah, between that's right. One yeah. And two. Well, that's yeah. a But there's a precedent in Francis's family for writing late in life. Well, it's true. Yeah. I mean, Granny got going at 80. Absolutely. It's and um was very she's very good, you know. That was also funny. And my mother's great and she won't publish. She's written a brilliant short story. But she's um but there are the outlets so much now for just getting a short no, story you're published right. as a as a single yeah. thing. Yeah, it's, it's a shame. Yeah. It's a real shame. I, I think don't know. often I just when think... you write a book that you think is genuinely standalone, there'll be one character, yeah. maybe even the main character, that yeah. just sticks yeah. with you and you yeah. have to explore. It's not just readers saying to you, Oh, I want to know. It's yeah. very much in your own heart. Absolutely. Oh gosh, yeah, it has to be. Absolutely yes. it has to be. Otherwise you just couldn't do it. Yeah. And I just felt with James that um, I wrote Me Must Be Brave, where he's a peripheral character, and I thought, I haven't finished with you. You know, I need to... And he has a huge backstory, which doesn't even appear in the book. You know, I know all about what his father did and all these But you know, things, you, know. you know it. So I needed it, to, to sort of really get him three-dimensional, and I think a lot of people do that. Um, I think it's really, really important, especially when you're not writing about your own era. Um, you have to really understand how it must have been for somebody to grow up, to become the person that they are. And that involves um, a huge amount of research that doesn't ever really go into the book, but creates a kind of solidity somehow, which absolutely. is absolutely crucial, yeah. um, I think, for this for this kind of fiction. So, and so Frobisher is not going to come back, is he? Or is he you're done with you're done with Frobisher? I think I did with Frobisher. <laughs> I had a lovely time with him because he he just developed this arc that I had no idea was going to happen at the beginning. I mean, I literally yeah. wrote one scene. The initial scene has his James talking to his possible potential new archdeacon the person who is in charge of hiring james should he pass the interview and um i sort of got oh well that's quite he's quite looks quite an interesting bloke you know and then of course i had him turn up again and then i thought oh yes he's great and and he likes little puppies and he gets down <laughs> on the floor this great big man gets down on the floor with this tiny puppy and he climbs up a ladder and nobody expects him to be able to do that you know and it oh, it turns out he was in a battle in the war, you know, because all that generation had a war service, you know, or a great deal of them did. So I thought, oh, yes. And then I suddenly realised that he was key. Of course he was so important in James's life, James's personal, emotional, and indeed spiritual life. Um, so he reappears as a key, a pivotal scene um, where he... Yeah, again. I'd say yes. Rescue. Not too, not too yeah, much. It's a kind of rescue operation he yes. conducts, I would say. Yes. Yeah. So what have we got to look out for this month, Tim? Well, uh, to start with, I thought I'd start with the children's book singers. That seems to be a new focus for the, for the, for the podcast and the programme. Uh, My Heart Was a Tree by Michael Morpurgo. Now, uh, some of you will, will know that, that line, My Heart Was a Tree, is a, it's, it's inspired by the Ted Hughes poem. of, um, But it's, this is a collection of stories and poems celebrating trees. And it's, it's, for, it's for a sort of middle grade readership, which is basically some sort of first readers to, to pre-teen. Um, and it's, uh, although it can also, be, also obviously be read to, to younger, younger children who can't read. Um, it's illustrated by Yuval Zoma, and it's just a really nice collection. So that's, that's something to look out for. Um, the Reverend Richard Coles has a new book out, uh, A Death in the Parish. We which, like Which is also a, a sort of another, you know, the next, the next part in the, in the Champton series. Um, Isabel Allende has a new book called The Wind Knows My Name, 
Um, and I haven't really yet read it yet, but I'm looking for, I've got a copy and I'm looking forward it's to reading that. It's meant to be that. really good, yeah, isn't no, it? I, I do like her writing um, and I'm looking forward to reading that. Uh, out in paperback for the first time, we've got Act of Oblivion, the Robert Harris thriller oh, yeah. uh, set in America after the, the restoration of, of King Charles II. Um, and it's about the, the, the two regicides that escape uh, the country and, and uh, go around, wandering around America and being hunted by, by King Charles's men. Uh, and so, so the men who killed? The men who killed, well, the men who, uh, who, who signed the execution document oh, for, okay. for, for, for Charles I right. um, are on the run. Uh, because when the after the, after the rest after the Cromwellian period, the, the Commonwealth, um, Charles II comes back in and he he pardons everybody apart from the people who signed the death warrant of his father, who is determined. Is that true? Is that yeah, based true. on facts? So right. He's determined to, to to kill to bring them all to, wow. to and and what happens to these people who did it is pretty gruesome. So I've, I think there are, I don't know how many there were sixty or seventy that signed the document. Some had died in the interim period. But the rest of them were all hunted down, hunted down all over Europe, uh, where they'd escaped to when the when the restoration happened. So it's a bit like the Nuremberg trial. Yeah, they were hauled so back and uh, they were hung, drawn, and quartered. Mm, hanged. Uh, which is pretty gruesome. I don't mm. know if you know. They have to be alive, don't they? When they when they are ripped open and their insides are pulled out, mm. it's. And, and have other, a nice Sunday lunch, and, everyone. And, and that's not the least of it, I can tell you. There are other gruesome things that we don't need to go into that we now. Um, but it's anyway. So, so these two people escape to America. Uh, they manage to flee the country, and they think they've got away. But there's a chap who's after them, and so that's where it becomes more fiction because nobody knows what happens. Happens to these two that got away. So um, there's a big manhunt underway. Uh, and of course, in America, there's an ambivalence towards the crown because mm. you know it's not it's not straightforward. There are people who have escaped um, who are very sympathetic to to the uh, Cromwell and the and the Commonwealth uh, and not to to the monarchy. But at the same time, the, the governor of the of of this of the Virginia and various places are still monarchists. So it, it it's complicated. Sounds and good. The people are, people are on the run and it's it's a it's a good thriller really. So that's that's Act of Oblivion and that's just out, coming out of paperback. Lessons by Ian McEwan. Um I think this is his best novel for a long time mm. and that's just out in paperback. And that's a bit of a bit of a Roman a cliff, I think. Yes, it? I think that's uh, a good term. Uh, uh, so it's kind of it's sort of based a bit on his life but isn't it not entirely. Um, Hugh Bonneville's Playing Under the Piano is out in paperback uh, uh, next month, so that that will be great. Um, those of you who, who who didn't read it in hardback, and I know a lot of people did because of uh, uh, Hugh's local connections, it is a highly entertaining look at his 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 acting life, really, um, on on film, on stage, and. Uh, it, he he writes really well. I mean, he's he's he. I know he writes. And it he isn't ghost scripts. written, is it? No, no. He writes yeah. film scripts, and he yeah. knows how to write, and he he's he's really good at it. So, um, and it's funny. It's yeah, you know, it light-hearted, and it, it's great. So, well great. on him. Um, the last book I was going to mention was Philip Limbury's book, uh, Sixty Harvests Left, which I haven't read yet, and I must read because I it's had some terrific, terrific coverage. It's basically saying. Um, the way that we're degrading the soil mm. means that we have we have to do something fast, or otherwise we're going to run out of food. In sixty harvests. In sixty harvests. Ooh. We need to do something about how we how we farm, uh, make it l less intensively, less mm. less putting of putting of um, 
chemicals. intense chemicals on on the on the on the soil and just managing the soil better or otherwise it's just going to soil is key isn't it yeah, yeah. So Susie, instead of backlisted this month, you're going to tell us a bit about more about children's books? Well, you? yes, as I said, I just feel that I want to be looking at the future, the children of our future, and books that are coming out. Um, and, and I know we've already done this before. We've had several authors. I mean, if people, listeners might remember Camilla Chester, Catherine Evans last month, Candy Gourlay. And of course, some of your backlisted choices in the past were classic books from Penelope Lively, Susan Cooper, Diana Wynne-Jones... So, so why the change? Well, it's odd that I was thinking this on, on a walk with... I mean, I'll do all my thinking on a walk with the dog, as you know. But only the next day I heard Frank Cottrell Boyce, who, as you know, is a highly successful author and screenwriter. And he had been on the week before, on the radio, the week before, apparently, saying how frustrated he is by the lack of conversation about children's books in the media. Um Anyway, Nadia Shireen, who's an author and illustrator, launched with him a new... Oh, listen, I'm going to play the trailer. You can just listen to her introducing the Island of Brilliant. It was a fine and pleasant day when Nadia and Frank set sail across the seven seas. But on a dark and stormy night, their ship was cast upon the reefs of the Island of Brilliant. Everything is brilliant on the island of brilliant in a flash we put up our hammocks and settled down to read welcome ashore this is the island of brilliant the podcast that treasures all that's brilliant in children's fiction so it sounds good fun doesn't it so um after a recommendation, so we're, t- we're talking about where children could go and find out things and parents as well. So one of my friends is on my book corner and the link is on the website where there are great reviews. So if you didn't catch anything or you, you, you would like some more recommendations other than catching a podcast, because not everybody has the time or wanting to listen to a podcast. So if you go to mybookcorner.co.uk, there are hundreds of brilliant reviews. And thanks to that, I came across The Dark and Dangerous Gifts of Dolores McKenzie. Great title. (laughs) Great title by Yvonne Bannum with the cover art by Nathan Collins. And I mention again the, the cover art because the artist is hardly ever mentioned. And it's certainly really attractive to young people. At first, it seems a mashup of, well, to me, because I'm the age I am and it's not aimed at me, but it seems a mashup of Ursula Le Guin, J.K. Rowling, etc. This isn't a criticism. Um, but it centres on the dark side of Edinburgh, which I love with its wines and its ghosts and its strange, genuinely strange, dark places. Um, but also the feeling. Uh, I say especially amongst girls, I think boys operate differently. I think there's a feeling amongst girls of not fitting in, not being part of the crowd. And there's certainly a thing that girls, and I have to say some women can do, which is where they shut you out. So they exacerbate that feeling of being the odd one out, which is very well exemplified. But I'm going to read from the very first chapter to give um, just a taste of it. Brilliant. The Dark and Dangerous Gifts of Dolores Mackenzie by Yvonne Bannum. Chapter 1 
Dolores always left her escape from the island until the last possible minute. She loved the race along the causeway, competing against the rapidly rising tide, daring the waves to push her off her feet as she dashed through the first slithers of incoming seawater. This particular afternoon was sharp and blustery, with March winds sending storm clouds scudding along the firth. Even by her usual standards, Dolores had left it late, huddled against the wall of the old lookout as she finished one more chapter. She stuffed the book in her pack as fat, cold drops of rain burst onto the back of her neck. As she turned towards the causeway that linked Crammond Island to the mainland, she saw a dark smudge at the edge of her vision. Can't be, she whispered. The prickling on her arms told her different. A suggestion of a shadow, an echo of a person long dead. A Borchen. What are you doing here? she shouted. You never come out here. The Borchen darted to the side, almost impossible to track in the storm-soaked light. Dolores swung her pack over her shoulders, pulled up her hood and ran down the steep bank onto the shale. The water was already lapping the causeway. She walked quickly, shoulders hunched, hands thrust deep into her pockets. Faster, then running. There was a disturbance in the space behind her. Her hood was yanked back and the neck of her coat was pulled tight around her throat. Something grabbed at her hair, dragging her back, but she kept her balance, just... Dolores tried to scream, but what little voice she had was left Dolores tried to scream, but what little voice she had left was drowned by the cries of the seabirds that hovered on the updraft. Her hood slackened, and a dark figure, more solid now, slid behind one of the stone pylons that lined the causeway. A man once, she thought, from its shape, its movements. She waited, watching for the Borchen to show itself again. Nothing. Dolores turned again towards the shore, towards home. If she ran hard, she'd make it in a couple of minutes, but her feet were skittering along the stones that were slick with new seawater and the remnants of dead weed. She felt periwinkles crunching under her boots and the corvids that had been feeding on them rose in front of her, making nothing of the violent wind. Dolores sensed something reaching out for her as she raced towards the foreshore. Just a few more metres. She slipped as she hit the turn in the path and slammed down onto her right hip. There was no time to register the pain. Something tugged on her backpack and dragged her a few inches across the rough surface towards the water, scuffing her jeans and the skin beneath. The shock froze her for a moment. What are you doing? she screamed into the wind. Let me go! Dolores flung her weight forward and scrambled back to her feet. The sky had darkened to an inky midnight blue and the row of white cottages ahead became vivid against it. She took a deep breath and powered up the slipway, her feet sliding back on the sand that was blowing across its hard surface, her legs shaking with effort. She reached the foreshore and raced towards home, the sound of her own boots barely disguising the footsteps gaining on her with every metre. She prayed that her sister would be home, that the door wouldn't be locked. The handle twisted and she fell in through the door. She reached back to catch it and slammed it shut behind her. Dolores slid down onto the cold stone floor. Could do with some help here, she shouted.
Okay, so thank you for that, Susie. That, that was lovely. Um, our, who's, our, guest, our guest next month is going to be Claire Fuller, is that right? Claire Fuller. We're, we're hoping we, we hope, can get her for hope. June. She's yep. certainly coming to your book club, isn't she? She is. In, uh, in, a, in, a few, in a couple of months' time, she'll be here. So, but, uh, but more on that next time. Well, we'll maybe get her in the interview then, Tim. We'll okay. see. So don't forget to let us know what you've been reading in your local book groups, and we'll mention it on the programme. Find us in all the usual podcast places. We love hearing your comments and recommendations. Thank you. Thank you, Susie. Shine Radio and dozens of quality stalls at the Petersfield Spring Festival. It's got everything from close-up magic and balloon modelling to fancy dress for princesses and classic cars. <laughs> Live music brings the square alive. There's food and drink all weekend long and loads to do for the kids. You can even try your hand at reading the local news with Petersfield Shine Radio. The Petersfield Spring Festival. All bank holiday weekend. <laughs>